Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. It is a great blessing that we may be here again to join together in the worship of our triune God. A hearty welcome to all of you who are present here and also to those who have joined us via the live stream this afternoon. May the preaching of the gospel message direct our hearts and minds in faith and trust to our Saviour Jesus Christ and cause us to live our lives to the praise of him. Consistory has the following announcements. The consistory with deacons will meet tomorrow evening at 7.30pm. This afternoon, the worship service will be led by Reverend Poppy. Before we begin this service, let us sing praise to our Father, and we do so by singing together hymn 7, verse 1 and 4. Sisters, please rise and let's worship the Lord. As God's people, we confess that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing a song of praise to God. Let's sing together from Psalm 113, the verses 1, 2, and 3.
This afternoon, brothers and sisters, I may preach God's word to you concerning the Trinity of God, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet he is one, one God. One of the creeds which emphasizes the teaching of the Trinity is the Athanasian Creed. So let us confess our faith this afternoon with the words of the Athanasian Creed. Please say with me in his heart, whoever desires to be saved must above all things hold to the Catholic faith. Unless a man keeps it in its entirety inviolate, he will, assur- he will assuredly perish eternally. Now this is the Catholic faith that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity without either confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. For the Father's person is one, the Son's another, the Holy Spirit's another. But the Godhead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one. Their glory is equal, their majesty is co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, such is also the Holy Spirit. The Father is uncreate, the Son uncreate, the Holy Spirit uncreate. The Father is infinite, the Son infinite, the Holy Spirit infinite. The Father is eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. Yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. Just as there are not three uncreates or three infinites, but one uncreate and one infinite. In the same way, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, the Holy Spirit almighty. Yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. Thus the Father is God, the Son God, the Holy Spirit God. And yet there are not three gods, but there is one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, the Holy Spirit Lord. Yet there are not three lords, but there is one Lord. Because just as we are compelled by Christian truth to acknowledge each person separately to be both God and Lord, so we are forbidden by the Catholic religion to speak of three gods or three lords. The Father is from none, not made, nor created, nor begotten. The Son is from the Father alone, not made, nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is from the Father and the Son, not made, nor created, nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity, there is nothing before or after, nothing greater or less, but all three persons are co-eternal with each other and co-equal. Thus in all things, as has been stated above, both Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity must be worshiped. So he who desires to be saved should think thus of the Trinity. It is necessary, however, to eternal salvation that he should also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the right faith is that we should believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is equally both God and man. He is God from the Father's substance, before all time, and he is man from his mother's substance, born in time. Perfect God, perfect man, composed of a human soul and human flesh, equal to the Father in respect to his divinity, less than the Father in respect to his humanity, who, although he is God and man, is nevertheless not two, but one Christ, He is one, however, not by the transformation of his divinity into flesh, but by the taking up of his humanity into God. 
One certainly not by confusion of substance, but by oneness of person. For just as soul and flesh are one man, so God and man are one Christ. Who suffered for our salvation, descended to hell, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, sat down at the Father's right hand, from where he will come to judge the living and the dead, at whose coming all men will rise again with their bodies and will render an account of their deeds. And those who have done good will go to eternal life, those who have done evil to eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith. Unless a man believe it faithfully and steadfastly, he cannot be saved. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's sing together. We're going to confess the Trinity. We're going to sing from hymn 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. Let us pray to God and ask him for his blessing. Almighty triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you that you are the God who created this world, the God who saved us from our sins, and the God who renews us and to make us into new people. We praise you that as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
that you have an intimate unity within yourself. From all eternity, you existed, and you lived together. You had a profound love for one another. Within the Trinity, you expressed your love towards one another. And then at the right time, you created this world. You created Adam and Eve, and you placed them in the garden. And then you revealed yourself to them and to us all. And it's as you reveal yourself to us that we understand something else of your, of your person, that you are one God, and yet that you are three persons. It's an incredible thought. It's mysterious. It's beyond us. And yet we confess this to be true because this is how you have revealed yourself in your word. This afternoon, we hope to open your word and to consider a part of this revelation. And we pray then that you would give us your Holy Spirit, Father, so that through the Spirit that we may understand what you reveal about yourself. Help us to, to know you and to love you. Help us to understand what a great God you are and grant that we may worship you. Please work powerfully in our hearts with your Spirit that we stand in awe of you, that we draw near to you, that we may more and more be conformed according to your image. Father, we thank you that it is your joy to reveal yourself to us. This is not something we can do apart from you, but this is something you must make available to us. And so we, we pray that you would accomplish it this afternoon as well. Thank you also for the gift of your word. It's through your word that we come to know you and to draw near to you. And so we pray for a blessing over the proclamation of the gospel, that we may stand in awe, that we may draw near. Please help us in this, for Christ's sake. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, this afternoon, I may preach to you God's word concerning the, the Trinity of God. He is one God who has revealed himself in three persons. There are many passages of scripture that speak of this. One passage I'd like to read with you this afternoon is taken from Exodus chapter 40. So I'm going to read a few verses, Exodus 40, the verses 12 to 31. Sorry, did I say Exodus? I meant Isaiah. Page 713 of your guest Bible. Isaiah chapter 40, starting at verse 12. In Isaiah 40, verse 12, the, uh, the prophet Isaiah, he's writing to the Israelites at a time just before they were taken into exile. He's aware that this is about to happen, and he wishes to encourage God's people to realize that the Lord is God and that he has it in hand. He has the power. So in Isaiah 40, verse 12, there God's word says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. 
To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circles of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So far the reading of God's holy word. Let's now sing together. We'll sing of the creative power of God. He called this world into existence simply by speaking. Psalm 33 verses 1 and 2.
This afternoon, I will preach God's word to you concerning the revelation of God as the Trinity. We're going to do so by looking at what the church has also summarized, confessed in Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism. You find it on page 524 of your book of praise. So back in Lord's Day 7, there is the call to faith. We need true faith to share in Christ and all his benefits, to be saved. Then it, it asks, well, what do we need to believe? And it ends off by saying, well, we need to believe the doctrines of the scriptures, as it's also summarized in the articles of the Christian faith. And then Article 8 builds off of that. It says, well, how are these articles divided? Into three parts. The first is about God the Father and our creation. The second about God the Son and our redemption. And the third, about God, the Holy Spirit, and our sanctification. Since there's only one God, why do you speak of three persons? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. Then after the proclamation of the scriptures, we're going to sing together from hymn 6, the verses 1 and 2. Dear brothers and sisters, congregation loved by the Lord Jesus, the greatest thing in this world is to know God. If you know God, then you know the most important things in, this, in life. If you know God, then you can answer all the big questions of life. Where did we come from? And where are we going? And what's the most important thing for us to pursue? If you know God, then you know the source of all the trouble in life. The reason there are so many problems, everybody's got a different, a different way of diagnosing the problems. But God tells us the core of the problem is sin. And if you know God, then you also know the solution. The core of the solution is found in Jesus Christ. If you know God, then you know why you're here. You know that you're here to, to praise God, to glorify God. You know that the single best thing that you can ever do in your life is to pursue a relationship with God, to know him, to love him, to walk with him, to serve him, to honor him, and to glorify him. If you know God, then you know the important things that you ought to value and pursue, things like justice and righteousness, like love and faithfulness, like truth and kindness. Then it's really interesting, if you were to pursue this, if you, if you say to yourself, I'd really like to get to know God better, then you'll notice that there's a bunch of different ways, or there's a bunch of different character traits about God and ways he reveals himself to us. So there are, in the first place, those character traits in which God is very different from us. If you were to go to to a dogmatics, a systematic theology textbook, and you're to read up about this, we call them incommunicable attributes. They're incommunicable. They can't be communicated from one person to another. And so one of God's incommunicable attributes, for example, is that he is almighty. He is the powerful God. He's majestic. He has authority over all things. And that's something that we don't share in. 
We don't have the power that he does. We never will. He may give us some of his, his power through his son, Jesus Christ, and through believing in him, but we will never have the power that he has. He is the creator God who speaks things into existence. And we'll never have that ability, that kind of power. Or if you want another incommunicable attribute, he is omniscient and omnipresent. He knows all things. He literally knows everything that goes on everywhere in the world at the same time. He's omnipresent. His spirit is, is present. By means of his spirit, he is everywhere present. He's able to, to be with us here this afternoon. He's able to be on the other side of the world where someone else is worshiping him. Well, these are incommunicable attributes. They're never going to be able to be communicated to us. But then there's also what they call the communicable attributes, those that, that we share in. And it's really striking. If you read through the Bible and if you seek to study the communicable attributes, then you realize that most of the time they have to do with relationship. The Lord's a God who's really good at relationship. And as we know him, then his spirit lives in us, he recreates us into his image, and we also become really good at relationship. So he is a God, for example, who loves. He loves dearly. He pours out his love on us. Well, that's the, the best thing that you could ever have in order to have a relationship with other people. If you love someone dearly from the heart, then that's the basis for a really deep and a really solid relationship. He's a God of truth. He speaks the truth every time. He's a God of faithfulness. He's always true to his word. He makes promises to us, and he always fulfills the promises that he makes. He's a God of kindness and compassion. He's a God who, who is righteous. He always does what's right in relationship with us. And he's also a God of justice. When someone acts in ways that are not right, that are not righteous, then he says that's not okay with him. You oppress, you abuse, you manipulate, you exploit another person, and God says, that's not all right. He says, someone somehow needs to set that right. And as a God of justice, he ensures that those, those sins are corrected, that righteousness is reestablished. He's also a God of grace, of mercy, of forgiveness, and of compassion. Well, it says we know God, then he recreates us into his image. And so we also become people who are loving and truthful and faithful, who are righteous and just, who are forgiving and compassionate. But you know, brothers and sisters, if you just know these things about God, if you know his incommunicable and if you know his communicable attributes, you know a lot about God. But there's also a really foundational thing that you don't know about God. And that is about his person. Because he reveals to us, starting at page one of the Bible, that he is a really unique person. He is one God. He is one in essence. And at the same time, he reveals to us that he is three persons. He is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And if you don't know that about God, if you don't understand that he is these three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if you don't know anything about the relationship that he has within the Trinity, then at a really foundational level, you really don't know God. But the beautiful thing is that 
from day one, he starts revealing to us his trinity. When you read the Bible, then immediately he confronts us with that. And if you keep reading through the Bible, then he continues to develop and to to share with us more and more of his self-revelation, giving us a better understanding of how he interacts together in the Trinity and of what that means also for us as people. Well, I, I preach God's word to you this afternoon with the theme, God reveals his glory to us in the Trinity. We're going to see in the first place the revelation of the Trinity, and then secondly, the glory of the Trinity. So what does God reveal about his person, about his essence? It's really quite interesting. When you start reading the Bible, then it's a very different book than, than any other book that we have that we would use if you wanted to learn about something else. If you, for example, if you want to, to look at a legal code or if you want to look at a manual or something, you want to look at the, the Australian Constitution, or you want to look at, at a body of laws, you wonder, you know, what are the laws in this, in this nation around property rights? then usually you go to a certain chapter, and in that chapter it kind of spells out what you need to know about, about property rights. Or if, you, if you're a mechanic and you, you need to fix a Toyota Land Cruiser and they got some trouble with the transmission, then you open your manual to the transmission section and you find out what's going on with the transmission and what you need to do in order to put it together. Well, the Bible's not like that. The Bible's a story. And what... What God does in the story of the Bible is that he reveals many parts about himself, but he does that as an interwoven revelation through the story. And so the story starts on page one. It starts about God's revelation of his creative work. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it tells us about the manner in which he did it. He spoke, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So who's God? Well, he's the creator God. He's a powerful God. He simply needs to speak, and he's able to call things into existence. And then the first few chapters, they tell a little bit more about that creation. But then it's very interesting, in chapter 2 already, and going on from chapter 3 and following, the story moves from creation, and it moves into God's relationship with his people, and how he lives in a relationship together with them, and how his people interact together with him. But then it's only later in the Bible that it gets back to his work of creation. And it starts filling out our understanding and expanding our our insight into what God really does and what's all involved in his work in creation. And so it starts off with a snippet here, and then you have all these little snippets as you keep reading through the scriptures. And it's really interesting, in the book of Revelation, that's also one of the key themes in Revelation, we are worshiping the creator God the one who made all things and called everything to existence, the one who has the power. John really emphasizes that in order to comfort God's people by drawing back right to the very beginning. Well, before you get to the end of the Bible, you, you have these, these little snippets. If, you, if I just take a minute, if you think of some of the most common places, you go to the end of Job, Job 38 to 41. You have these beautiful chapters. Job is really struggling because He's struggling with the righteousness of God. God, how can this happen to me? This is not right that these things happen to me, that I suffer as I should. And he challenges God. You can't do this to me. And then God, he answers him by revealing his creation. He said, Job, were you there when when I stretched out the heavens? 
Were you there when I set the, the stars in their place? Do you have any understanding, Job, about, about what I did when I created the world as I did? When I gave each of the animals their individual characters? When I set everything in place to work together as it does today? And Job, when he thinks about that, then he realizes that he has very little understanding of the wisdom and the power of God, even in creation. And so he's deeply humbled, and he's never going to question God anymore about God's righteousness and his dealings with him. Or you think of the chapter we read together from Isaiah 40. The Israelites, they're just about to go into exile. And it would be, you know, it would, it would rock them to the core, be the most difficult thing they ever went through. We're going to be sent out of our land. We're no longer living in Canaan. We're not in the promised land. What does that mean for our identity? Are we still the people of God if we don't get to live in the promised land? And right at the very beginning, even before that happens, Isaiah, he reminds them of the power of God. And he says, don't forget, he's the creator God. The Lord is the one who called this world into existence. The Lord is the one who sits enthroned in heaven. The nations, if you want to know who God is and who the nations are, well, on this side of the scale, you have some dust on the scale, and that's what the nations are in comparison, or I guess this side of the scale. That's what the nations are in comparison with the Lord, who is the almighty, powerful, creator God. And so Isaiah comforts the people. He says, it's not because God isn't powerful that you're going into exile. You better get that idea out of your head. It's, it's not because the other nations are more powerful and their gods are better. No, the Lord is the creator. The Lord has the power. The only reason this is happening is because of your sins. It's because of God's justice. Or you think of Psalm 139. The Lord reveals that as the creator God, he makes each one of us into a unique individual. It's actually a really beautiful psalm to read when you you visit a new couple. They just had a baby. The psalm speaks very tenderly about the love and the the creative and the unique gifts, sorry, the creative power of God in giving unique gifts to each one of his people. It's in verse 13, David says, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. And that word for knitted together there, sometimes it's translated as to cover or to shade or to protect someone from something. It's in Psalm 91 verse four, it's used of the image of the Lord covering his people like a hen would cover her chicks. Very great protection, great care. That's the image that God has in, in creating his people. He shades them, he protects them, he has very tender care for them. He makes each one of us unique, and he does so in a very careful way, creating us as he needs us to be in order to fulfill the purpose that he has for us. David says in the next verse that he was fearfully and wonderfully made. He says that the work of our creator God in knitting us together and creating our inward parts is really quite awe-inspiring. And, you know, we know that for our children. We know the uniqueness of each of our children. Maybe if you're a doctor or if you're a nurse, then sometimes you you get a little better sense of how fearfully and wonderfully made God's people are. Sometimes you see where it goes wrong. You understand disease and you see how things go wrong and then 
And then you understand God's creative power. You understand what he's done, how he's knit us together, and how he made us into such incredibly complex beings. You're attacked by an influenza virus. And there's this incredible choreographed dance that goes on within your body where you have multiple systems and systems on top of that and other systems behind that that work together to defeat the disease and to be able to, to keep you healthy. Well, your father, he knit, that, he knit you together. He gave that to you. He made you exactly how he needs you to be. Or if you understand the brain, here you are, you're, you're driving in your car, you're sitting in your living room, it's the end of a long week, and you listen to your favorite music. And your brain is able to perceive that music. And it, it not only is something that you hear and that you understand, but it's something that, that elicits all sorts of emotions within you. And maybe you go back to a previous time in your life when you heard that music. And you hear that, and you encode that memory, and you burn it into your mind, and that becomes part of your, your memory that 10 years later, you can recall in an instant. And somehow, all those systems work together for you to be able to do that. Well, this is your creator God who knit you together in your mother's womb, who made you into the person who you are so that you can function the way that you do. He is a powerful God. He's an awesome God. His works, as David said, are awe-inspiring. He is fearfully and wonderfully made. And so who is God? Well, the first answer you can give to that question is you could say God is the creator. He's the one who made us. But then it's really interesting, at the same time, on another level, God also reveals more about himself in his creative work. In Genesis 1, he tells us that he called things into existence simply by speaking. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And David reflects on that, Psalm 33, 9, for he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. So God's creative work happened by agency, and the agency was God speaking. But then the interesting thing is that later in his word, the Lord also reveals to us that there's another reference here. There's more going on than simply that he spoke a word. Because when our Lord Jesus Christ comes along, then the very first thing that the Apostle John tells us, tells us about him is that John says, chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. And so what John's telling us is that when God spoke, it's not just a reference to the words that came out of his mouth, but it's a reference to his son. In verse 14, John says, And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's later in Colossians, the book of Colossians, chapter 1. There in verse 16, the Apostle Paul tells us of Christ. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So what God's saying to us is he's saying, Everything was created through Christ. And so what God's doing with, with his revelation in, in Genesis 1 
is that he's telling us about his creative power, but he's also revealing to us his character, his person. That there's not just one, but that there is also the Son through whom he has called everything into existence. And already in Genesis 1, he, he alerts us to the fact that there's actually there's three persons in the Trinity. Because in Genesis 1 verse 2, you have this line, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so the Spirit is acting in concert with the Father and the Son. And then it's really interesting if you, if you know Hebrew, um, one of the most common, or one of the most, not common, it's one of the most, um, the words you should know the best, um, popular. One of the most popular words in the Hebrew language that we know is, is this word for spirit. The word for spirit, it's not just translated as spirit, it's also translated as wind or as breath. And if you know that about the spirit, then there's a bunch of other Bible passages that all of a sudden come to life. You think, for example, of Job 26, verse 13. Job reflects on the power of God and he confesses that his breath made the heavens beautiful. His breath, his wind, his spirit made the heavens beautiful. It's in Psalm 104, verse 30, we're told that God sends forth his spirit and all creatures are created and he renews the face of the earth. Or you have in Psalm 33, verse 6, the psalmist confesses all three persons of God working together in creation. It says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. David's confessing that the world is called into existence by God, by the Father. He does it through his word and by the agency of the Spirit. And so the picture that you get when you, when you put the scriptures together, brothers and sisters, is that God is revealing to us that his work in creation, it is actually the work of the three persons of the Trinity acting together. And so his, if you want to know God, that it's not enough to know that he's powerful, it's not enough to know that he's the creator, you also need to understand that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is, he is one in essence, and he is three persons. And it's really interesting when when you come to see that God is these three persons, then it's very well possible that you fall into the thinking that there's three gods. Well, I read about the Father, and he's God, and I read about the Son, and he's God, and I read about the Holy Spirit, and he's God, so there must be three gods. If you have a conversation with someone who's new to the faith, that's one of the first conversations you have. You tell them the gospel story that, that God created this world, and God lived in fellowship with his people, and you get to the heart of the story, you get to Jesus Christ, and they're like... Uh, does that mean there's like two gods? There's a father and there's Jesus Christ? And they say, actually, there's, there's a third one. There's a Holy Spirit too. And they're kind of like, well, how does that work? Well, the Bible emphasizes, the Lord emphasizes that there's not three gods, but that there is actually just one God. If you go, for example, right at the beginning of God's revelation to his people Israel, he's taken them out of Egypt. It's in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. God summarizes the essence of his person for his people right up front. 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's not three. He's not 20. He's not 100. He is one God. We serve one God. That's the heart of the understanding of the essence of God. And part of the reason that was so important for the Israelites is because they lived among people who didn't serve one God. You go back to Egypt, they came out of Egypt, and in Egypt they had multiple gods. They had the god, the first god was Osiris, he's the god of the underworld. You have the god Isis, who is his wife. You've got Horus, who's the god of war. You have Hathor, who's the goddess of motherhood and fertility. You have Re, the god of the sun. You have all these other gods. There's dozens, there's, there's literally hundreds of gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And then the Israelites, they go on from Sinai, they come into the Canaan. When they get into Canaan, it was no different. The Canaanites, they worship Baal and Ashtoreth, and they worship Chemosh, and they worship Molech, and they worship Dagon, and they worshiped another pantheon of gods. And in contrast with these nations, the Lord says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is one God. There are three persons, but there is one God. It is in Deuteronomy 4, verse 39. It's in verse 35, and then a little later in verse 39. God reminds his people of his power and his faithfulness in rescuing them out of Egypt. He reminds them of his glory on Sinai, and then he, he contrasts himself with these gods of other nations. He continues, he says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other beside him. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath, there is no other. Don't worship the God of the underworld. Don't worship the God, read the, the sun God. Don't worship the other gods that the nations present to you. There's only one God, and that is the Lord. Something God reminds his people of later in their history. They're about to go into exile. And they would have the, the first thought of all the nations around them. If you go into exile, it means that the gods of the nations who are conquering you are more powerful than your gods. And so even before they go into exile, the Lord reminds them. He says, no, uh -uh, that's not the way it is. That's not the truth of it. Isaiah 45 verse 4, sorry, verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. And this is a thought that gets carried on into the New Testament. The Lord again impresses on his people. You have the Greeks, you have the Romans, they each have this pantheon of gods. They have all these the different gods. Actually, today, we're actually getting more and more familiar with these gods. There's lots of people who are talking about and it's not that they worship them, but they're intrigued by them, and they talk about them, and it's people in the fringes of society who start to worship them. Well, it's all the ancient gods. They're being introdu introduced to us through games, through books, through movies, you name it. And it's all the same stuff. It's all these false gods. Well, God reminds us that he is the only God and that he is one. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 4, that the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul, he says, therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence 
and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so many, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as there are indeed many gods and lords, he says that in quotations, many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so Paul says, idols are nothing. They're emptiness. They're useless. If you worship an idol, you're worshiping nothing. He says, actually, he says, the, the only thing that may give power to an idol is the demon that stands behind the, the idol. But he says, demons, they're nothing compared to God. There is only one God. He's the creator. He created everything. He even created those, those angels who have fallen, these demons. And so they're nothing in comparison to God. There is only one God, and that is the Lord. And then Paul's very kind, and he, he works that out, and he immediately explains how God has revealed himself to us. He says, there's one Father from whom are all things and for whom we, we exist, and there is one Lord, Master, Ruler, that's the word Lord. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so he explains that this one God is made of different persons. The really beautiful thing, brothers and sisters, when you understand that, that God is a trinity, that he is one God, and yet that within the trinity that there are these three people, and that's something that gives you also a much better understanding of the, the attributes of God. God's attributes are revealed not just in our relationship to him, his relationship to us, but his attributes are revealed in the first place in his relationship within the Trinity. If you want, let me just use one example, maybe a couple examples. The first example that I can use to illustrate this is, is in Acts 2. When God reveals himself, then, then what he does is he shows that the different parts of the Trinity, they each have a different role. And we confess that in Lord's Day 8. The Father is involved in our creation. He's primarily responsible for our creation. The Son is primarily responsible for our redemption, our salvation. And the Holy Spirit is primarily responsible for our sanctification. But then when you get to a passage like Acts 2, then, then you see how these are woven together in order for God to accomplish his purpose in his dealings with us. So the focus of Acts 2 here is on the Holy Spirit who's poured out on the church at Pentecost. So you have that occasion, you remember the situation, they're meeting together in the upper room, then the Holy Spirit comes down on the people in tongues as of fire. And then these people start speaking in other languages. When the people wondered what this could be, they wondered about this, this event, and then Peter explains to them that this is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that was prophesied by the prophet Joel back in Joel 2. And Peter explains that the way this has come about is through the working of God the Father and God the Son. He says in Acts 2 verse 22 that Jesus came into the world and was credited to the people by the great miracles he did. According to God's set foreknowledge, Jesus Christ was handed over to be crucified at the right time. But then Peter says, God raised him from the dead. And in verse 33, he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, 
And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. If you, if you just reflect on that for a second, he mentions God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're three distinct persons. He says of the Father that he handed Jesus Christ over to be crucified, that he raised him from the dead, that he exalted Christ at his right hand, and that he gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out on his people. That at Christ, it says, that he came into the world as a man, he died on the cross, he was raised to life, he's exalted to heaven, and he poured out the Holy Spirit. And of the Holy Spirit, it says, that he proceeds from the Father and the Son, that he takes up residence in the hearts of the believers, and that he enables them to speak in other languages. And so there's a real difference. Each has their own sphere of influence. Each has their own responsibility. And yet these three persons work together in profound unity. They have the same goal. They're working to the salvation of their people. There is this perfect harmony between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you want a, another example, brothers and sisters, this one, this first one emphasized the unity. Let me use one more example that emphasizes the love of God. Well, God's love is powerfully demonstrated in the work of the Trinity. It is in John 3, verse 16, we're told, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So the first thing we're told here is that God gave his Son. He sent his son. Now just imagine that the son was not God. Imagine that the son was not a part of the Trinity. If God gave his son, or if God gave someone who is not one in essence, who is not a part of the Trinity, then he would sacrifice, he would offer something that doesn't belong to him in order to save his people. He accomplishes salvation without it necessarily being so personally costly to him. But when you read the scriptures, then the scripture emphasizes the profound unity between the Father and the Son. And it emphasizes the incredible cost, not just for the Son, but also for the Father in sending his Son. It was extremely costly to send Jesus Christ into the world. God gave his monogamous son, his one and only son. It's not that he has many sons. He's got 10 sons and he chooses one of them and he says, okay, you, you're going to die on the cross. No, he has one son. This is his one and only son. And of his one and only son, he says, I want you to go into this world and I want you to die for the sins of my people and I want you to bear the eternal wrath that I have against all their sins. And the son says, yes, father, as you send, I will do. And so he's willing to bear the cost. He's willing to pay the price. Well, just imagine if you were asked to do that, brothers and sisters. You take one of your children, and you're going to sacrifice 
that son for the sake of another person? You're going to sacrifice them for someone who hates you. Someone who's opposed to you. Someone who is your enemy. Well, who would do that? Who would be willing to bear that kind of cost? It is in Romans 8, sorry, Romans 5, verse 8, that the Apostle Paul emphasizes the only reason God does this is because it demonstrates the extent of the love that God has for us. God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You can appreciate the extent of God's love, brothers and sisters, when you understand the Trinity. It's by understanding the, the oneness of God, and the cost of God, that you understand the depth of his character, his, the depth of his love towards us. If I can use one more, one more example. One of the other things that the scripture talks about is about the, the way that the father has entrusted all judgment to his son. It's in John 5. The son doesn't judge of his own. He does as he has been entrusted to by his father. But you think about the trust that the father invests in the son to make that judgment. Now, sometimes that happens in, in family relationships. Son takes over dad's business, and he's going to run the business, and he walks alongside a life with dad, and eventually he starts doing it for his dad. And there's a time where dad says, okay, son, now you do. It's your business. You run. You go do it the way you think is best. And he entrusts his son with the business. Well, in this case, the father entrusts the son with the judgment of all things. The whole world is going to come into judgment. And it's not the father who will judge, but he says he's given judgment to his son. So Jesus Christ will be seated on the throne, and he will be judging. And there's such unity, there's such intimacy, there's such love between the father, there's such an understanding between the father and the son, that the father knows that the son will judge exactly as he himself would judge. And so the, it is in the Trinity of God, it's through an understanding of, of the triunity, of the, the oneness of these three persons, that we see the depth of their character, that we understand the rest of, of their attributes. Do you, do you appreciate the deep unity that stands, that exists between them, brothers and sisters? Do you see that they're all three God? That they all three existed from eternity? That they all three share the same power? That they're all three are working towards the same goal? It's really, it's good to see that. It's good to understand that. It's good to pursue that. When you read the scriptures, then seek to understand who the Father is and what he's doing and how that complements the Son and what he's doing and how that's complemented by the Spirit and what he's doing. The Lord, your Father, he really wishes to reveal himself to you. He wants you to know him. So when you know the Trinity, that's when you understand what unity is. So when you know the Trinity, that's when you understand what love is. Well, these are the greatest gifts that God wishes to give us. He wishes to share in his love and his unity. And so he reveals himself. In the story of the Bible, he reveals 
his person, not just his attributes, but also his person, so that we stand in awe of him, that we praise and glorify him, and most of all, that we become like him, that as we worship him and glorify him, that we are changed into to being conformed to the image of his son. Well, let's pray that God gives us a rich measure of his spirit, and let's pray that we do indeed know him and that we walk with him. Amen. Before we pray, brothers and sisters, let's first sing. Let's give glory to God. We're going to sing hymn 6, verses 1 and 2. Father in heaven, we praise you that you are great in majesty. You are the one who called this world into existence. You are the one who has all authority and all power. You are the one who, after creating this world, upholds all things, who adopted us into his family, and who works towards our redemption, the time where we can live together with you in perfect unity. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you were willing to follow your father's call that you came into this world, that you're willing to, to bear the curse of our sin, 
We honor you, Lord Jesus, that you, that you took our curse upon yourself, that you're willing to bear our punishment in order to redeem us from our sins. We praise you, Father and Son, that you sent your Holy Spirit into this world in order to renew us. Holy Spirit, we praise you, that you are our guide and our comforter, that you reveal the truth to us so that we may know the Father and the Son, that you reveal your word to us so we may understand the work that you have done in this world. Thank you for sanctifying us, and thank you, Holy Spirit, that you will bring us into glory. You promise that, that you will work in our hearts to renew us, and that you will continue this work so that more and more we are conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that for the sake of our Lord Jesus, that you work powerfully within us, that you continue your work, and that you give us great comfort that you accomplish what you set out to do. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank and we praise you that you love us so much that you're willing to do this for us. We stand in awe of you, of the unity that you have between yourself, and of the unity of purpose that you have in saving your people. We stand in awe of you that you're willing to be so kind and so compassionate in your dealings with us, even though it costs you so greatly. We pray, Lord, that as we know you, that we would be more and more like you. The Apostle Peter says that we, are, that we are partakers of the divine nature. We are conformed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would do this for us, that you would allow us to become like you. We thank you that you reveal to us how that's possible. It's by knowing you, and it's by loving you, it's by worshiping you. As we do so, Lord, then we delight to walk in accordance with your law, with your commands, because we realize that this is a revelation of yourself and that we become like you. And it's the closer we draw to you, the more that you reveal yourself to us. Forgive us then for the many times where we turn our back on you. Forgive us for the many times where we act according to our sinful nature and where we offend you and where we show a lot of ingratitude to you. Please forgive us for not being like you, but being those who, who are estranged from you. Lord, thank you that, that you don't give up on us. Thank you for your faithfulness for the sake of your name. And we pray that for Jesus' sake, that you bring us into glory, that for the sake of your name, that you accomplish the good work that you've started in us. We know that you will because you promised you would. Dear Father, we pray then that as we read your word, that we also understand more and more of you, that we understand your attributes, your incommunicable and your communicable attributes, that we also understand your person, that you are a trinity, you're you're one, one in essence, and yet you're three separate persons. Please protect us from, from not understanding and from falling away and from, from drifting away from you. Father, we also pray that as we know you, that we may more and more be a, a display to others of the, the goodness and the power and the love that you have. Father, we also pray that you would take care of us in the daily circumstances of our lives so that tomorrow when we go to work or when we're at school or in, or in the other circumstances, that we may work with this knowledge on a daily basis. We're thankful, Lord, for, for the blessings that you give to us. Thank you, Lord, that, that you give each one of us a, a place in your kingdom. You've made each one of us unique, and you've given each one of us separate gifts, and you call us to use them in service of your name. But some of us are single. You put us in a place where we're not married, and we're, maybe we are widowed, or widower, that we've been, 
we've outlived our, our spouse, or in that circumstance, you put us there for a very unique purpose. You wish to, to have us there so that we can serve you with the, the unique gifts and the unique place that you put us. We pray then, Lord, that you be with the single members of our congregation, that they may have much joy in the place where you put them, that they can have peace of heart in serving you, and that they may make a, their own contribution in the kingdom of heaven. Father, thank you for the special position that you've given. You talk about it in your word, that this is, this is a unique place and that, that you have special gifts for those who are in this place. And we pray that this may also be experienced by those in our congregation who are single. Father, we also thank you for the senior members of our congregation. We're so grateful for the wisdom that you have given to them and for the way in which they can be a blessing for the rest of us. I want to ask, Lord, that you sustain the seniors in the, the roles that they have, in their families, and, and also within our community. I want to pray to this end that you bless the work at Fairhaven, that you continue to be near to those who are, who are being cared for. Grant that as an organization that they have the, the people that are needed to look after our seniors, also that they have the money that they need. Please grant a spirit of unity and cooperation. Please grant a blessing over everything that's done there. Thank you, Lord, that in so many ways it's such a beautiful institution and there's so many blessings that you pour out. That's a rich measure of your grace, and we, we pray that that may continue and increase under your blessing. We also want to ask, Father, that you please also take care of the members of our congregation who have special needs. We're grateful, Lord, for the special people who you've given to us. We also pray for the families who are caring for them, and we ask that you would provide them with all that they need. Lord, we're grateful that this past week that that worthy hands could be open. We want to pray for your blessing over, over the work that's being done there. Thank you that those who have special needs are able to work within this capacity. Grant that, there can be, that this can be a place where it provides much blessing, not just for them, but also for the community. Grant, Lord, that, that through the work that they do, that they can be a light in your world, that they can be a testimony of your grace and kindness. It's especially important in our time, Father, there's so many people in our world who don't, under, who don't appreciate the, the special gifts that you give to those who have special needs. You've created each one of us unique, and you've given each one of us special gifts. And it's often these people who have a very great faith in you, a very simple profession of their faith in our Lord Jesus, and who love you, and who are, who are willing to serve you, and who look forward to living with you for all eternity. Thank you for their great faith, and thank you for the example that they give to the rest of us. We pray that you would bless them in the, in the work that they do, in the fellowship that they have, in the place that you put them, and grant that we may also learn from them. And then, Father, we also wish to ask you that you would also bless the work that's being done at Eucalypt. We're grateful for the home that we can have, and we entrust those who are living there to your care as well. Please grant your blessing over those who are caring for them. Grant that they may be provided with excellent care, that this may be a real blessing for the members and that it can be a testimony to your love and your kindness. Dear Father in heaven, we pray that you would be with our schools as well. We're so grateful for covenant education. We're thankful that, that we live within a community, that this is a community of your people, that we're adopted into your family, and that as family members that we can care for each other, and we can also do that in educating our children. And that we pray for your blessing over this, Lord. Please be with the teachers. Give them great insight into your character and Please bless the work that they do there. 
help them to teach the students about you and your world, and grant that the students are able to cooperate in their learning, that they would love to learn, and that they would be able to use their gifts in, in serving you. It's often difficult when you're in grade school, and even in high school, to understand how the subjects will one day correspond with a life of service. And yet, Lord, we, we know that you prepare us for this. We ask that you would give a sense of patience and a sense of, of inquiry and delight in, in knowing you and in knowing your world. Grant that our, our children can grow up and that they can love to, to know about you and, and to know about the world which you've placed them and that they can use also their gifts to find a place in serving you and your kingdom. Dear Father, we, we also wish to ask that you would be near to us as a congregation. We're thankful for the gifts that you've given to us, Lord. The greatest gift is often each other, that you give us to one another, that we can know and love each other, that we can encourage each other and build each other up. We're thankful for the love and unity that we may have, and we pray that this may grow and increase. Grant, Lord, that we may be united together with one heart and one mind, just as you are within the Trinity. Grant, Lord, that this unity is based on love, as you have loved us. We pray that this also may be a testimony to many people around us. Our Lord Jesus Christ, he, he prayed to you that we would be united, because he said that when we are united, then the world would know that, that you are God, that Jesus Christ is your Son, and that, that we are your people. And we pray then that we may be a testimony to, to who you are and to what you do, also in the way that we live together. Father, thank you that you have the power to make it happen, and we rely upon you for your help in this. Pray that you would bless us then the week that lies before us. Please grant that each one of us may, may do our task in humble dependence upon you. Help us not to be independent, not a viewer of each other, but help us to, to live together in interdependence. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, you now have the opportunity once again to give your thanks to the Lord and do that by supporting the work that's being done in P&G. I'd like to read one text with you surrounding that. It's in Galatians chapter 6. Um, it's in verse 9 and 10 there. That the Lord says to us, he says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Well, your gifts will be collected for the work in doing good to those in P&G, and after the collection we'll sing together to the praise of our God, hymn 5, the verses 1 through 4.
Receive God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.